All right, good morning, everybody. So uh, as Earl was saying, uh, we have now, after nine weeks, reached the end of our Conversations with Jesus series. And we're going to be finishing with a conversation that I think is a really appropriate way to conclude. Uh, in some ways, it takes us back to the basics. Uh, but even if we've grown up the church, we've heard the basics a million times, it's always important to be reminded of certain fundamentals. Um, so the reason that I'm choosing this passage for our conclusion, I think will become clear in a moment, but we're not going to waste any time. We're just going to dive right in. So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along uh, in that, we're going to be reading from Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Uh, Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Lord, we thank you uh, for the ways that you've been uh, teaching us through this series, God. Uh, we thank you for uh, the, the times we've had where we've been able to watch you interact with others and, and learn from you, learn about what you value and uh, uh, what you want to teach us, God. And I, I pray that uh, this last message, Lord, would help to uh, kind of bring things full circle, um, help us to remember who you are and... Uh, and also help to equip us, Lord, to share with others who we believe that you are. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. So over the last two months, we've been observing Jesus interact with people, Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the Pharisees, the rich young ruler, Peter, the devil, uh, some travelers on the road, and through those, ob those um, observing, those interactions, we've been getting more and more familiar with Jesus, right? Now, at this point, the disciples had become very familiar with Jesus. They had observed Jesus in a variety of situations in many different conversations, and there came a point when Jesus asked them to render a verdict about him to make a judgment about who they believed that he was. Who do you say I am? You've watched me. You've lived with me. What's your conclusion? Who am I? And I want us to realize that just as Jesus asked this question to the disciples, as we get more and more familiar with Jesus, as we become acquainted with his teaching and observe him, he's asking that same question to us. Who do you say? that I am. What's the verdict? Now, before Jesus asks that personal version of the question, he asks a less confrontational, less per personal question, which is, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, just in case there's any confusion at all, that title, Son of Man, that's the title that Jesus likes to use to refer to himself. 
So both of these questions, the subject is the same. Who is Jesus? It's just the first question is impersonal, and the second question is personal. So the first question is essentially, what is everybody else out there saying about me? As you encounter people on the road, what are they saying about me? And the disciples' answer might sound a little strange to us, right? They say, some, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And basically what this answer is, people are saying that you, you are a prophet. People are saying that you are somebody who is speaking on behalf of God. Because John the Baptist was a present-day prophet for the disciples, and Elijah and Jeremiah were famous prophets from the past. And what the disciples are saying, everybody else is saying, is that Jesus is either a prophet like these people, or he may even be a reincarnation of one of these prophets from the past. Uh, you might have noticed that the disciples leave out the less flattering things that people are saying about Jesus. Like, he's a glutton and he's a sinner, and he's an agent of the devil. People were saying all those things too. I guess the, the disciples wanted to emphasize the positive. Uh, so they say, people are saying that you're like John the Baptist or Elijah or, or uh, Jeremiah. Now, if Jesus were to ask us that question today, what are people saying about who I am? Our answer would not be, John the Baptist, Elijah, or Jeremiah, right? Most people don't even know who those people are. But there is a lot that we could say in response to that question. Who do people say that I am? A lot of people believe things about who Jesus is. And this week, I, I found an article that I think really brilliantly and humorously describes a lot of the answers that people in our culture today give to this question, who do you say that, that Jesus is? Uh, it's an article by a pastor and author named Kevin DeYoung. And I'm going to read, read it because I, I thought it was great. So, <clears throat> almost no one is as popular in this country as Jesus. Hardly anyone would dare to say a bad word about him. But how many people know the real Jesus? There's Republican Jesus, who is against tax increases and liberal activist judges, and for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who is against Wall Street and Walmart, and for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. There's Therapist Jesus, who helps us to cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are, and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus, who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid, and goes to film festivals. Sarah says that's my favorite Jesus. <laughs> There's open-minded Jesus, who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's Touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's Martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. 
There's gentle Jesus, who is meek and mild, with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot, wearing a sash, and looks German. There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and helps us remember all you need is love. There's yuppie Jesus. Do people still use that word, yuppie? It just means, you know, like rich. There's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine. He wants us to find the God within. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and dream up impossible utopian schemes. There's guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. Now, I don't want to make it sound like there isn't any truth in any of these Jesuses that are being described here. Um, are there things in the Republican platform that probably reflect Jesus' values? Yeah, in the Democratic platform too, yes. Is it true that uh, Jesus can be very therapeutic for us? Yeah, of course. Is it true that Jesus is a great example? Yes, yes. Does Jesus critique the religious establishment at times? Yeah, of course. Is Jesus wise and sometimes inspirational? Yes. There's at least a kernel of truth in every one of these Jesuses that I, I just described. But none of these answers really capture Okay, the heart of who Jesus is. Um, none, of them, none of them capture the answer that Jesus applauds in this passage. Uh, after Jesus asks, what's everybody else saying about me? He, he turns the question around, he makes it personal, and he says, what do you say about me? And then Peter gives an answer that's very different from any of the answers that we've heard before. Okay, he, he doesn't say, oh, I agree with everybody. You're like John the Baptist and Elijah and Jeremiah. And he doesn't say, oh, well, Jesus, you're like the ultimate therapist. Or, you know, you're, uh, <clears throat> you, you are uh, a great example to us. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus tells Peter that this answer is a sign that he is blessed, right? This is the answer that, gives, that gets the Jesus thumbs up of approval. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what does that mean? Well, there's two parts there, right? You are the Christ, and you are the Son of the living God. So, first, let's talk about the Christ. What does that mean? We're so used to hearing those two words together, Jesus Christ, that we tend to think of them like a first and last name, right? Like Jesus is Mr. Christ. Uh, but Christ isn't a last name. Christ is actually a title, like Jesus CEO. Uh, but the title is much more significant than CEO. Christ was a title that meant the anointed one. The anointed one. And the word 
for, for Christ in Hebrew, for the anointed one, sounds like Messiah. Messiah. So the anointed one, what does that mean? Well, in those days, when a, a king was made king, he was anointed with oil, and that oil was a sign of the presence of God. It represented that the presence of God was with this, this king and had given the king authority and power. Okay? So, when Peter says, you are the Christ, it's kind of like he's saying, you are a divinely selected king. Or, you are someone God has given authority to. But, it means even more than that. Okay? Because notice, Peter doesn't say, you are, uh, you are a Christ. He says, you are the Christ. Right? In other words, you are the divinely appointed king. And the reason he says this is because the Jews believed that one day a very special king was going to come. And they believed this because over the centuries, as prophets had spoken on behalf of God to the Jewish people, there was this reoccurring theme that one day a king was going to come who was going to make things right. Everyone had an acute awareness that there is a large gap between the way that things ought to be and the way that things actually are. And this, there was these prophecies that this king was going to come, this king that was unlike any other, who was going, to, was going to eliminate the gap between how things are and how things ought to be. And that king was called the Anointed One, the Messiah. And the Jews were so eager to see this special king arrive. You know, people hoped and longed to be part of the generation when the Anointed One, the Messiah, would come. And so when Peter says, you are the Christ, that is a loaded statement, okay? He is saying, you are the one that we have been waiting for. He's saying, you are the one that prophets have been talking about for centuries. You are the one who's come to set things right, to inaugurate the reign of God on earth, to make things on earth as it is in heaven. So, if we are going to answer this question that Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? If we're going to answer that question in a way that Jesus approves of, there's a couple things we have to recognize. And if you're taking notes, these are the uh, two blanks underneath that first section of the Christ. Um, the first thing we need to recognize is that Jesus is the supreme king. Jesus is the supreme king, right? Jesus isn't just a therapist or a friend, or a revolutionary, or a spiritual guru. He is all those things in a sense, but he's so much more than that. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then two, Jesus is the culmination of the history of Israel. He's the culmination of the history of Israel. Jesus is the culmination of a story that's been unfolding over millennia of time. And that's so important for us to remember because sometimes I think we try to understand who Jesus is without knowing anything at all about the Old Testament or about Judaism or about Israel. But Jesus is part of that story. Uh, actually, not only is he part of that story, Jesus is the whole point of that story. 
And that means that we can't really see Jesus in the way that he wants us to see him unless we understand some of that story. We really need the Old Testament. And I know the Old Testament can be hard to understand and apply. I tend to preach a lot more from the New Testament than the Old Testament. Um, But we really can't understand how amazing Jesus is and who he really is without that background uh, in the story. It's kind of like you can't really start a movie near the end and just watch the climactic scene of the whole thing and appreciate it if you don't know anything about what came before. So we have to value the whole story if we're going to value Jesus. All right, so that's what it means for Jesus to be the Christ. Okay, what does it mean for him to be the son of the living God? Let's talk about that. Now, that is a remarkable title. It's even more remarkable than the Christ because this title suggests equality with God. It suggests equality with God. Now, you might say, well, hold on. Uh, I don't know if I see that. Right? Peter doesn't say, you are God. He says, you are the Son of God. And after all, I mean, aren't we all, in a sense, sons and daughters of God, right? He created all of us. Ultimately, we all come from him. So it's kind of like we're all his kids, right? Now, that is true. We are all created by God. And because of that, you might say that we are like sons and daughters of God. But notice something here, okay? Just like when Peter said that Jesus is the Christ, he doesn't say Jesus is a son of the living God, right? He says he is the son of the living God. And that implies that Jesus is one of a kind, right? It implies that there is something about Jesus's relationship to God that is fundamentally different from every other person's relationship to God. He's unique. He's special. And that difference between Jesus and every other person is described through this metaphor of Jesus being a son. Now, what does that mean for Jesus to be the son of God? Does it mean that God has a wife and the two of them have a kid together and that kid is Jesus? Well, no. Uh, What it means is that Jesus comes from God and is of the same essence as God. Okay, it's a metaphor, and there are things about it that are similar to our experience of having children, right? But it's not entirely like that. It means that Jesus comes from God and is of the same essence or, or nature as God. Uh, you could say that Jesus' character is one with God's character, and his nature is one with God's nature. Now, again, you might say, well, I don't know about that, okay? Isn't that taking the title of Son of God just a little bit too far? But if you're thinking that, okay, keep this in mind. For Jesus to say this in the time when he said it to the Jews was blasphemous. And we know that from the scriptures themselves. Uh, When Jesus is taken before Pilate, The Jews uh, insist that Jesus be crucified. And Pilate says, well, why? You know, why do you want to crucify him? And they say, we have a law. And according to that law, he must die. Why? Because he claimed to be the son of God. Can you see that? Claiming to be a son of God, it's not just claiming, oh, I'm one of God's kids, just like we're all one of God's 
kids, right? It's not even uh, just claiming that I have a special task from God or that I'm a king that God has appointed. It's something more intense than that. It's to make oneself one with God in essence and character and nature. And notice, when Peter says, you are the son of the living God, Jesus doesn't say, stop your blasphemy, Peter. I'm just a man, right? He doesn't correct him. No, he says, Peter, you are blessed, right? Jesus wants us to see him as one with God. He wants us to look at him and think, this is the revelation of who God is. This is what God is like. In fact, in the Gospel of, God, of, of John, uh, Jesus has the audacity to say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, if you have seen me, you have seen God. You know, I was thinking about how Peter responds in this way. You know, you are the son of the living God. And I thought, that is so remarkable that Peter would say that. Because if anyone was in a position to think that Jesus wasn't really equal in nature with God, it would be Peter, right? Because Peter has lived with Jesus for the last couple years. He's traveled with him. And you can't maintain some charade that your character is equal with God when you're living with somebody, right? Like, <laughs> if I had the audacity to start walking around and saying that I am equal with God, the people who would be most likely to be able to tell, no, of course he's not, are my wife, right? And my brother, my mom, my dad, they would know. Why? Because they've lived with me, right? When you live with someone, you can't hide your flaws anymore. Like, nobody's going to be able to maintain an illusion that they're sinless or perfect once you start living with them. You can only do that if you have some distance, right? But Jesus and Peter were together all the time. They were traveling together. They were, they were probably sleeping right near each other. They were eating together, right? And under those circumstances, if Jesus had real flaws, they would have come to the surface. And yet, Peter says, you are the Son of God. Okay, because despite living and traveling with Jesus for years, Peter knew he wasn't seeing flaws in Jesus. The more he got to know Jesus better, the more it was clear that Jesus was utterly unique and different and remarkable and righteous. Spending time with Jesus had the opposite effect on Peter that it would normally have on a person uh, when, you, when, you're, when you spend time with a person. You normally start to see their flaws, not their righteousness. So, to summarize, okay, what is the answer to this question? Who is Jesus? Well, here's the way I would summarize it. Jesus is the supreme king come to make things as God intended, he is the one promised throughout the centuries to the Jewish people. And he is a person unlike any other, one with God in character and in nature. Now, you might say, well, those are some pretty bold, audacious claims right there. Right? Why would I ever believe them? A guy says that he's God in the flesh. Why take him seriously? 
In fact, I would hope that if somebody was walking around saying, I'm God in the flesh, that most of us would not take him seriously, right? Well, that is a question that can't be given an adequate answer at the end of a sermon. Um, But if you're asking that question, I want you to know that there are a lot of good reasons to take Jesus seriously. You know, we could talk about how his teaching is and was revolutionary, that there were things about it that utterly broke from his cultural context. Uh, We could talk about how millions of people in the past and in the present have had their lives changed by him. We could talk about how people have have found freedom from addictions and patterns of behavior that were destructive in their lives, how Jesus has completely changed uh, their lives around. We could talk about that. We could talk about how Jesus' life and his teaching have captivated people, not just in one cultural context, but in multiple cultural contexts in in continents all over the world. And we could also talk about how there is a compelling case to be made that this guy Jesus literally and historically rose from the dead and that there are good reasons to believe that that is the best historical explanation for the data that we have. So we could talk about all those things and more, but we don't have the time to go into detail about them. So what I want to challenge you with, okay, if you're on the fence about who Jesus is, is to think about the way that C.S. Lewis described this situation about 60 years ago. Um, If you've grown up in the church or you're familiar at all with Christian apologetics, you've probably heard of something called C.S. Lewis's trilemma. And um, if you haven't, it's it's something that's definitely worth knowing about, okay? What C.S. Lewis said is that when you're trying to figure out who was this guy Jesus, you really only have three main options uh, for who he could be. Uh, Jesus can either be a liar, he can be a lunatic, or he can be who he said he was. He can be Lord. And really, this is just simple logic, right? Jesus claimed equality with God. He said things like, I and the Father are one. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He uh, affirmed Peter when he said, you are the son of the living God, right? Jesus claimed equality with God. So if he did that, we have three options. Either he was lying, you know, he was, he was telling a falsehood, and he knew he was telling a falsehood. Or he was crazy, he was a lunatic, right? He didn't know that he was saying something that was false, but he was saying it anyway. Or he was, he was actually who he said he was. Uh, I really don't think there's another legitimate option there. And my challenge to you, if you're not sure whether Jesus is a liar, a lunatic, or Lord is to get familiar with Jesus. Read the Gospels. Find out what he's like. Because when you do, I really don't think you're going to find a liar. Right? You'll find someone who is relentlessly devoted to the truth, even if it costs him, even if it costs him his life, which it does. And you won't find a lunatic. You'll find somebody who's very thoughtful and balanced, someone who practices self-discipline and restraint, 
someone who, who plans his actions very deliberately and thoughtfully. You know, I hope that as we've gone through our Conversations with Jesus series, you've been able to see these qualities emanating off of the person of Jesus. He does not come across as a liar or a lunatic. And what's remarkable is that the people who were closest to him, people like Peter, people who would have had reason to think that he was a liar or a lunatic, they're the people who were the most convinced that he was Lord. Because they were the people who were willing to go out and suffer and die in order to spread the message that Jesus is Lord. The people who would have had the most reason to know that he was a liar or a lunatic. So if you have your doubts, get to know Jesus better. Right? Read the Gospels. Learn about the person that you find there. You know, on my own, I cannot convince you uh, that Jesus is Lord and God. I, I, can't, I can't do that. You know, when Peter told Jesus that he had come to recognize him as the Christ and the Son of the living God, Jesus said, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And what that means is that if we're going to realize that this is really true, it's not going to be just because I say to you, oh, Jesus is God, right? You actually have to have an encounter yourself with Jesus. You have to explore Jesus. You have to read the scriptures. You have to get to know him. And when you do, you find that this Jesus, he's not a liar. He's not a lunatic. He's Lord. And the Jesus that we meet in the Gospels, he's not Republican Jesus. He's not Democrat Jesus or therapeutic Jesus or spiritual guru Jesus. You know, we find someone who's much more compelling, uh, much more impressive, much more challenging than any of those Jesuses that our culture tells us about. So this is how uh, DeYoung ends his article that I read from earlier. So he describes all these different Jesuses that we find people talking about in our culture. And then he says this, But then there's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for, the Son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood, the Christ promised to Abraham, the Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites, the Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died, the Christ promised to David when he was king, the Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering serpent, the Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins, 
more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. So may that be the Jesus that we know and worship. Because when it is, Jesus will say to us, like he did to Peter, you are blessed. Let's pray. Lord, we want to know you as you truly are. And Lord, we don't want a, a watered-down version of who you are in our heads. We don't want to worship a watered-down version of you. Uh, we want to know you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, I pray that if there's anything uh, about our perception of you that needs to be adjusted, that you would always be shaping uh, our view of you more and more into reality, more and more into the truth. And Lord, I pray if there's any among us who, who don't know you, Lord, that we would be inspired to, to search for you, Lord, to study you, to encounter you. I pray that we would meet you, Lord, and that our lives would be transformed by your grace and your love and your power. In Jesus' name, amen.